it being the duty of those who are called to, to preach the word of God, to use plainness and point out the errors of the faithful. They must not be offended or grieved when they are told of their faults. Many at this day think the gospel is not well preached unless they are flattered. That is, they think men do not preach the word of God unless they cover their sins and endeavor to please them. But we here see another kind of divinity. Ministers, when they see any kind of wickedness among those who are committed to their charge, must not conceal it. It must be made known. It is better to put those to shame who have been negligent and sleepy than to hoodwink them that they may become more blind. The surgeon who hath a wound to heal cutteth away all the rotten flesh, or if there be any a posthume, he purgeth it to the quick to take away all the infection and corruption. So must the ministers of the word of God do if they wish to discharge their duty faithfully toward those committed to their care. And those of the faithful must bear such correction patiently, knowing that it is necessary that they should be thus handled. They must not murmur against those who seek their salvation. For what shall it profit us to be honorable in the eyes of the world if in the meantime God abhorreth us? But there are many who are displeased if they are told of their faults. If he who hath authority to teach point out the wickedness that reigneth among them, they will be displeased with him and mock him. We see how justice is corrupted and what favors are granted. Men speak of wickedness in their houses, in their shops, in the street, and in the marketplace. But if it be mentioned in the pulpit, if wickedness be made known by the preaching of the word of God, we see them displeased and full of malice. There is no man but what can say such a sin is common. Such a man hath done such a fault. Every one may see that sins reign among the people, and yet those who are appointed to watch over them dare not reprove them, although their office requireth it of them. It is said the word of God is like a two-edged sword, which pierceth the most secret thoughts, separating joint and marrow. Yea, it reacheth even to the bottom of the heart, and maketh known whatever sins lurk within us. If we wish to be taken for Christians, we must have quiet and contented minds, and not be angry when we are reproved for our faults. When we have any apostume about us, we must be willing to have it lanced. When the sore is ripe and raging, let us be willing to receive the remedy, knowing it is for our profit. It is said by our Lord Jesus Christ that he will send the Comforter. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Therefore, if we will not bow down our necks and receive God's yoke, that is to say, if we do not condemn ourselves and suffer him to exercise spiritual jurisdiction over us by those whom he hath appointed to preach his word, we shall be condemned. This is the cause why the papists speak evil of us. St. Paul exhorteth us to walk uprightly and to have a good conscience before God. 
if we wish not to be condemned by infidels. We must be meek and patient and show ourselves ready and willing to receive instruction from the word of the Lord. When our faults are made known to us, we must confess them. We are commanded throughout the scripture to reprove the wicked, but it is a common practice in these times for men to cast off all correction and take free liberty in all manner of sin and iniquity, being under no subjection. But those who wish to pass for Christians must not behave themselves in this manner. St. Paul saith, admonish one another, and again, reprove sin. To whom doth the Holy Ghost speak in these two places? To all the faithful, without exception. For although God hath chosen some, to whom he hath given a special charge to admonish, exhort, and reprove those that do amiss, yet notwithstanding, he chargeth every man to set himself against sin, and wickedness. If this be lawful for those who have no public charge, what must the minister do, whom God hath expressly charged to fill this office? There are bastard Christians among us at this day who know not God, nor obey his word. Therefore they will not bear correction. St. Paul reproveth the Cretans by putting them in mind of the witness of their own prophet, who saith, The Cretans are always liars, evil Etc. When God maketh known our faults and reproveth us, he doth it for our salvation. We ought therefore to be displeased with ourselves and confess our sins with the deepest humility. We gain nothing by being stubborn. It is of no use, for if we will not bow, God will break us in pieces. It seemeth that God wrought a miracle in sending the gospel into Crete. Although the people were very wicked, yet notwithstanding, the Lord in his goodness visited them. We may therefore perceive that God hath no regard to our worthiness when he calleth us to be first in his church, but he oftentimes does it to set forth the brightness of his mercy. If when we were cast away he reached out his hand and took us to himself, he deserveth so much the more honor and praise. We have deserved nothing at his hands, and if we have received the gospel, it is not by reason of our own virtue, for nothing can move God to call men to himself and make them know his will but his free mercy. Let us therefore learn to glorify our God in the spirit of humility. And if he hath chosen us and forsaken others, and we wish to remain in possession of so great a blessing, let us examine our lives daily. When we see that there is nothing in us but wretchedness, and that we can do nothing but provoke him to anger, let us prevent his wrath by condemning ourselves. When every man judgeth himself, then shall we be justified before God, who will not only purge us from all our wretchedness, but cause his glory to shine more and more, that we may have occasion to call upon him as our Father, and proclaim to the world that he hath redeemed us by the merits of his Son, that we may become his inheritance. Chapter 13, The Privilege of Prayer 
I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. 1 Timothy 2, 8. After St. Paul hath informed us that our Lord Jesus Christ came into the world and gave himself a ransom for all, and that the message of salvation is carried in his name to all people, both small and great, he exhorteth everyone to call upon God. For this is the true fruit of faith, to know that God is our Father and to be moved by his love. The way is open for us to run to him, and it is easy to pray to him when we are convinced that his eyes are upon us and that he is ready to help us in all our necessities. Until God hath called us, we cannot come to him without too much impudent boldness. Is it not rashness for mortal man to presume to address himself to God? Therefore we must wait till God calleth us, which he also doth by his word. He promiseth to be our Savior, and showeth that he will always be ready to receive us. He doth not tarry till we come to seek him, but he offereth himself, and exhorteth us to pray to him, yea, and therein proveth our faith. St. Paul saith, How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Romans 10:14. Thus it may be understood that God is ready to receive us, although we be not worthy. When we once knew his will, we may come to him with boldness, because he maketh himself familiar to us. The apostle addeth, Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. Romans 15 giving us to understand thereby that the gospel belongeth to the Gentiles as well as the Jews, and that every mouth ought to be open to call upon God for help. We must call upon God in all places, seeing we are received into his flock. The Gentiles were strangers to all the promises which God had made to his people Israel. But the apostle saith, Behold, God hath gathered you into his flock. He hath sent you his only begotten Son, even for the fatherly love which he bare you. You may therefore boldly call upon him, for it is to this end and for this purpose that he hath given you this witness of his good will. As often as the goodness of God is witnessed by us and his grace promised, although we be wretched sinners, as oft also as we hear that our sins were forgiven us by the death and suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that atonement was made for our transgressions and the obligations which were against us, and that God is at peace with us, the way is opened for us to pray to him and implore his blessings. It is said in Hosea 2, I will say to them which were not my people, Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. Therefore, as soon as our Lord God maketh us taste his goodness, and promiseth that even as he sent his only begotten Son into the world, he will accept us in his name, let us doubt not, but come immediately to him in prayer and supplication. 
If we have faith, we must show it by calling upon God. If we make no account of prayer, it is a sure sign that we are infidels. Notwithstanding, we may make great pretense to a belief in the gospel. Thus we see what great blessings God bestoweth upon us when we can have the privilege of prayer. God informeth us that if we call upon him, it shall not be in vain. We shall not be deceived in our expectations if we come to him aright. We shall never be cast off if we keep in the way which St. Paul hath marked out. Namely, if we have Jesus Christ for our mediator and trust in the merits of his death and passion, knowing that it is his office to keep us. And as he hath made reconciliation between God and us, he will keep us through his grace and mercy if we put our trust in him. When we are made sensible of the blessings which God hath bestowed upon us in granting us the privilege of calling upon him by prayer, we must exercise ourselves in this duty faithfully. We must be careful both morning and evening to call upon God, for we have need of his assistance every hour. Again, we cannot pray to God unless we have the spirit of adoption, that is, unless we be assured that he taketh us for his children and giveth us witness thereof by his gospel. As oft, therefore, as we read in Holy Writ, pray to God, praise him, etc., we must know that the fruit of our faith is set forth by these words, because God hath revealed himself to us and hath made the way easy whereby we may come to him. I will therefore that men pray everywhere. We see also in the first epistle to the Corinthians that the apostle saluteth all the faithful who call upon God, both theirs and ours. Chapter 1, verse 2. Here he joineth the Gentiles with the Jews, as if he had said, I will not confine the church of God to one particular people. It was so under the law, but after the wall was broken down and the enmity between the Jews and Gentiles taken away, there was liberty among all nations and people of calling upon God, because his grace is common to both Jew and Gentile. Moreover, St. Paul meant it to show that the ceremonies of the law were not to be continued after Jesus Christ was made manifest to the world. For in the time of the law, men were constrained to come together at the temple to call upon God. It is true that the Jews prayed, every man at his own house, but it was not lawful to offer a solemn sacrifice except in the temple, for that was the place that God had chosen According to the grossness of the people, it was requisite to have sacrifices until the truth should be declared more plainly. The temple was a sign which represents that we must come to God in one way only. And what is that? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot come nigh to God unless we have one to lead us. We must therefore trust in him through the merits of Jesus Christ. 
The Jews had this in a figure. We have it in substance and in truth. Again, God thought proper to hold them as little children in the unity of faith by means which were suitable for their rudeness. But at present we have such a clearness in the gospel that we need those old shadows no more, seeing that the order which God had established under the law is now abolished, that is to say, the order of the temple of Jerusalem and all the rest of the ceremonies. We must stay ourselves no more upon them. Our Lord Jesus Christ said to the woman of Samaria, The hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. John 4, 21 and 23. In those days there was a great controversy between the Jews and the Samaritans, the temple of Samaria being built in despite of the Jews. Those that worshipped at the temple of Samaria claimed the example of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. The Jews had the word of God. Christ saith that in times past the Jews knew what they worshipped, for they were ruled by a doctrine which was certain but that the Samaritans were idolaters. But now, saith he, you must strive no more for the temple of Jerusalem or for the temple of Samaria. And why so? Because God shall be called upon in spirit and in truth throughout all the world. Jesus Christ, having made his appearance, the old shadows of the law are taken away. Let us content ourselves, therefore, seeing we have a temple which is not material nor visible. Yea, all the fullness of the Godhead dwelleth in our Lord Jesus Christ. It is sufficient for us that he reacheth out his hand, being ready to present us before God, and that through his means we have an entrance into the true spiritual sanctuary, that God receiveth us, that the veil of the temple is rent, that we may no more worship afar off in the court of the temple, but may come and cry with open mouth, Abba, Father. Abba was a customary word used in the Hebrew tongue, that is, in the Syrian tongue. St. Paul put us two words, Abba, Father, in Hebrew and Greek, to show us that every man in his own tongue hath now liberty to call upon God. Yea, there is no more a particular place where we must come to worship, but as the gospel hath been preached throughout all the world, we must show that at this day every man may call upon God and pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. It is true we may now have temples for our convenience, but not in such a manner as the Jews had them. That is, we are not under the necessity of coming to some particular place in order to be heard of God. If there were other places as convenient for us as this, there would be no difference between them. Let us therefore learn that all ceremonies ended at the coming of Christ. This is very necessary to be understood in order to draw us from the superstitious notions of the papists, which only darken prayer. 
the Jews had their lights, perfumes, incense, etc. And they had their priests of the law, by which we may understand that we have need of a mediator between God and man. The papists keep all those things still, and in so doing, it is as much as if they renounced Jesus Christ. It pleased God to be served in shadows, as St. Paul showeth, Colossians 2, before the coming of Jesus Christ, who is the true body, that is, the substance of all. Do not those that seek such ceremonies estrange themselves from Christ? Do they not know that when Christ was here in the world and took our flesh upon him and suffered and died, that it was for this purpose that we might put our trust in him and have no more of these childish figures which served only for a season? Thus the papists with all the fooleries which they use, not only darken the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, but utterly deface it. Let us therefore learn to worship God and call upon Him out of a pure heart, without all these mixtures and things devised by our own brains, yea, and without borrowing that from the old law, which is no longer proper for us. We now have a full revelation in the gospel. Let us not therefore do this injury to God to put away the brightness which he hath caused to shine before our eyes, seeing the Son of Justice, that is to say our Lord Jesus Christ, is now made manifest to us. Why should we talk any more of walking in dark shadows, which were only of use when we were far from that great brightness which afterwards appeared? We must pray to God as he hath commanded us in the gospel. The papists make pilgrimages and go trotting up and down this way and that to find God. But in so doing, they forsake him and withdraw themselves wholly from him. Let us not follow these examples, but be confirmed in the doctrine of the gospel, wherein we are exhorted to pray daily, not doubting, but God will hear us in all our requests. When we make our prayer to God, we must not bring thither our melancholy or fretful passions, as though we would be at defiance with him, as one that prayeth when he is angry or murmuring, being disquieted by reason of affliction, which God sendeth for in so doing. We dishonor him. There are some who make a show as though they prayed to God by protesting against him because they are not dealt with according to their own fancy. Thus they will come to God, but it is to be at defiance with him as if a woman should ask something of her husband and at the same time say, Oh, you care not for me. This is the manner of prayer which some use, but it would be better for them not to pray at all than to come to God with a heart so envenomed with wrath. Let us learn, therefore, to pray to God with a peaceable heart. St. Paul showeth us that besides diligence in our prayers, we must also join thanksgiving, and if we do not immediately receive what we desire, wait patiently and be content until God be pleased to grant our request. So then, we must pray to God without murmuring, without fretting or foaming, yea, without using any reply to ask him why he suffereth us to languish. 
It appears that St. Paul had another meaning in this place, for he regarded the circumstance which we have mentioned before to wit that the Jews would gladly have shut out the Gentiles. For, say they, we are the children of God. He hath chosen us. And shall not the stock of Abraham have more privileges than the uncircumcised nations? The Gentiles on the other side mocked the Jews and considered them as children, not knowing that the ceremonies of the law were at an end. Thus the Jews despised the Gentiles and disdained them and would not receive them into their company. The Gentiles, on the other hand, mocked the Jews for their rudeness because they continued to hold fast the rudiments of the law. Here arose many schisms, one party setting themselves against the other, and the church was, as it were, torn in pieces. Yet above all things, God commendeth unity and brotherly love. Let us examine the form of prayer given us by our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father, which art in heaven, etc., He does not say that everyone, when he calleth upon God, shall say, My Father, therefore when I say Our, I speak in the name of all, and every man must say the same. We shall not have access to God by prayer, unless we be joined together. For he that separateth himself from his neighbors shutteth his own mouth, so that he cannot pray to God as our Lord Jesus Christ hath commanded To be short, we must agree together and be bound in a bond of peace before we can come nigh and present ourselves to God. These discords and debates of which we have spoken existed between the Jews and Gentiles. St. Paul showeth that they cannot call upon God without being refused and cast back until they be at peace one with another. This is the reason why he requesteth them here to lift up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Thus the apostle advised them not to enter into debates and contentions one with another. The Jews must not advance themselves above the Gentiles because they were called first. Nor the Gentiles condemn the Jews for the grossness of their understanding. All these contentions must cease and a perfect reconciliation must be made to show that they all have the spirit of adoption. That is to say that they are governed by the Spirit of God, even that Spirit which bringeth peace and unity. Let us understand this doctrine, that before we can dispose ourselves to pray aright, we must have this brotherly love which God commandeth, and this unity and nearness. He would not have each one to remain by himself, but would have us unite in peace and concord, although every one speak, though every one be apart in his own place, and pray to God in secret, yet must our consent come to heaven, and we must all say with one affection and in truth, Our Father. This word, our, must bind us together and so make us in fellowship one with another that there will be, as it were, but one voice, one heart, and one spirit. 
Moreover, when we pray, let the churches be joined together. If we wish to pray aright, we must not do like those who endeavor to divide that which God hath joined together under color of some little ceremony which is not worthy of our notice, separating ourselves one from another and dismembering the body. For those that conduct themselves in this manner show plainly that they are possessed with the spirit of Satan and are endeavoring to destroy the union that exists among the children of God. Therefore let all controversy be laid aside and trodden underfoot, and let us in liberty and with freedom pray to God, being assured that our Lord Jesus Christ hath manifested himself to us, and that through his merits we shall obtain a favor in the sight of God the Father. Truly we cannot join with those that separate themselves from us, for example, the papists call themselves Christians, and cannot we communicate with them in prayer? No, because they have forsaken Christ Jesus. We know that if we swerve from him, the least jot we get out of the way. Therefore, seeing the papists have separated themselves from Jesus Christ, the distance is too great between them and us to be joined together. But we must give our hand to all those that will submit themselves to Jesus Christ and with mutual accord come and render ourselves up to God. Our Lord Jesus Christ saith, If thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Matthew five twenty three and 24. Do we wish God to be merciful to us? If we do, we must lay aside all enmity one against another. For if we be divided among ourselves, God will cast us off. For he will receive none but those that are members of his Son. We cannot be members of Jesus Christ unless we be governed by his Spirit, which is the Spirit of peace and unity, as we have already shown. Let us therefore learn to live in friendship and brotherly love, if we wish to be received when we come to God. When we see anything that may hinder our prayers, we must remember that the devil goeth about to put stumbling blocks in our way. Let us therefore shun them as most deadly plagues. There are many who seek nothing else but to raise difficulties and disputations, as though the word of God was made to separate us one from another. We have already mentioned that the true intent of the gospel is to call us to God, that we may be joined together and made one in our prayers and requests to him. Those that indulge in contentious debates and endeavor to advance themselves one above another pervert good doctrine and fight against it and endeavor to bring the glory of God to naught. Therefore, they must not think that God will hear them when they pray to him, seeing they have not this unity and concord to go to him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. St. Paul saith, lifting up holy hands. By this, 
He would have us understand that we must not abuse God's name by coming to Him in our filthiness, but that we must be purged and made clean. For prayer is called a sacrifice, and we know that in the time of the law, when they sacrificed, they first washed themselves. And why so? Our Lord meant thereby to show us that we are full of filthiness, unclean, and not worthy to come to Him until we have been cleansed. But the figures of the law are now at an end. We must therefore come to Christ, for He is our true washing. Yet notwithstanding, we must not continue in filthiness, for Christ Jesus was given that He might renew us by His Holy Spirit, and that we might forsake our wicked lusts. God does not command us to bring our filthiness and infections before Him, but we must pray to Him, acknowledging ourselves utterly confounded and ashamed, full of uncleanness and filthiness, ready to be cast off unless cleansed through the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, by acknowledging our faults and blemishes, we must run to this fountain where we may be washed, that is, Christ having shed his blood to wash away our sins, we shall be accounted pure before God and wholly clean. When Jesus Christ gave us the spirit of sanctification, although there was nothing but infection in us, he cleansed us from our faults and gave us free access to God. Therefore, the apostle says we must pray, lifting up holy hands. In the time of the law and the Old Testament, God entertained the people with this ceremony that he would have them purified before they offered a sacrifice, yea, before they made solemn profession of their faith in the temple. These things are not in use at present among the Christians, but we must keep the substance. And what is the substance? It is this. Although we have no visible water for cleansing, yet we must come to the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is our spiritual washing. Sometimes the Holy Ghost is represented as clean water. As it is said in Ezekiel 36:25. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. This promise refereth to the coming of Jesus Christ. So then God showeth us that instead of the old figures which he gave to the Jews, and instead of material and corruptible water, we shall be purified and made clean by the Holy Spirit. David saith, I will wash mine hands in innocency, so will I compass thine altar, O Lord. Psalm 26, 6. When David speaketh thus, he hath respect to the figures of the law. We shall understand this more easily by noticing the passage where God reproacheth the Jews by his prophet Isaiah, because they came into the temple with filthy hands. It is said, When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. 
Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash you. Make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Isaiah 1. As our Lord God reproved the Jews for coming before him with filthy or bloody hands, so he commandeth us by the mouth of St. Paul to lift up holy hands, that is, not to be enwrapped in our evil affections. Thus we see what St. Paul meant, seeing we have this privilege that we may pray to God and draw near to him as our Father, We must not think that he will hear us if we come to him in our natural state of filthiness, for he will not hold those guiltless that take his name in vain. On the contrary, seeing Jesus Christ hath come to purge us and make us partakers of the Holy Ghost, we must endeavor to become pure. And as we cannot do it ourselves, we must have recourse to our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the fountain of all pureness and the source of perfection. We must not pray to God as though he were an idol and required to be served in a worldly manner. But our minds must be raised above our earthly affections. And as we lift up our hands, so must our hearts be lifted on high by faith. As oft then as we have our hands lifted up toward heaven, so oft should our minds be led to God in consideration of our weakness, knowing that we cannot have access to him unless we lift ourselves above the world, that is, unless we withdraw ourselves from unruly passions and vain affections. When we say, Our Father which art in heaven, we are reminded that we must seek him there and must climb up thither by faith, though we still dwell on earth. Let us learn, therefore, to renounce everything which God doth not allow, knowing that our salvation is in him alone. Let us put our whole trust in him, believing that he will aid and assist us in all our troubles and afflictions. For if we do not pray in faith, although the ceremony may be good of itself, yet shall it be vain and superfluous. Those who lift up their hands to heaven, and at the same time remain fastened to things on earth, condemn themselves, yea, as much as though they should set down their condemnation in writing, and ratify it by their own hand and seal, condemning themselves as hypocrites, liars, and forsworn persons. For they come before God, protesting that they seek Him, and at the same time remain attached to things below. They say they put their trust in him, and at the same time trust in themselves or some other creature. They pretend to be lifted up to heaven by faith, and at the same time are drowned in earthly pleasures. 
Let us therefore learn when we pray to God to be void of all earthly cares and wicked affections, knowing that there are many things which hinder us from coming to God. When we lift up our hands to heaven, it must be for the purpose of seeking God by faith, which we cannot do unless we withdraw ourselves from the cares and wicked affections of the flesh. Now let us fall down before the faith of our good God, confessing our faults and praying Him to put them out of His remembrance, that we may be received by Him, and in the meantime, that He would strengthen us and sanctify us from day to day by His Holy Spirit, until we wholly cast off all our imperfections and sins. But as this cannot be done, so long as we live in this mortal life, that he would bear with our infirmities until he hath utterly put them away. Chapter 14, The Only Mediator. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. At all times and seasons the world hath been so far from God that all people have deserved banishment from his kingdom. Thus we see in the time of the law he chose a certain people and gathered them to himself, leaving the rest of the world in confusion. Although men were so separated from God, yet do they all naturally belong to him. And as he made them all, so doth he govern and maintain them by his virtue and goodness. Therefore, when we see men going to destruction, God, not having been so gracious as to join them with us in the faith of the gospel, we must pity them and endeavor to bring them into the right way. St. Paul saith, For there is one God, as if he had said, God hath made all mankind, and hath them under his protection. Therefore it cannot be, but that there is some brotherhood existing between us. It is true that those who do not agree with us in faith are at a great distance from us, yet the order of nature showeth us that we must not utterly cast them off, but take all the pains we can to bring them again to the unity of the body, because they are, as it were, cut off. When we see men thus scattered, well may we be astonished when we reflect that we are all of the self-same nature. The image of God was imprinted in them as well as in us. Moreover, that which should have been the strongest band to hold us together hath caused the division and made us enemies, namely the service of God, the religion of Jesus Christ. Therefore, when we see poor unbelievers wander and go astray from the way of salvation, we must have pity upon them and do all we can to reclaim them, keeping in remembrance the words of the Apostle, There is one God, 
St. Paul addeth, and one mediator between God and men, whereby he giveth us to understand that our Lord Jesus Christ came not to reconcile a few individuals only to God the Father, but to extend his grace over all the world. We see set forth through the whole scripture that he suffered not for the sins which were committed in Judea only, but for those which were committed throughout the world. The office of our Lord Jesus Christ was to make an atonement for the sins of the world and to be a mediator between God and men. Having taken upon himself our flesh and so far abased himself as to become man, we should submit ourselves to him in all his requirements. Our Lord Jesus Christ was made like unto us and suffered death that he might become an advocate and mediator between God and us and open a way whereby we may come to God. Those who do not endeavor to bring their neighbors and unbelievers to the way of salvation plainly show that they make no account of God's honor and that they try to diminish the mighty power of his empire and set him bounds that he may not rule and govern all the world. They likewise darken the virtue and death of our Lord Jesus Christ and lessen the dignity given him by the Father. The apostle in the epistle to the Hebrews saith, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Chapter 2 17 and 18. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-450, 3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, 
whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.